Hi, this is Ben Lowell with Back to the Bible Canada and Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing today with our series, The Gifts of the Holy Spirit, with a message titled, Building Up, Not Tearing Down. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 to 20, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. It's always easier to tear down than to build and to criticize rather than create. Mockers and those who scorn often seem so much wiser, for they can stand at the back and shake their heads at the preacher or the person that's trying to accomplish something, and they criticize, and they seem so much wiser than those who shoulder the burden of the work. But we all do well to remember that no one ever builds monuments to critics. They have no statues in their honor, nor does anyone write a book calling them men and women of history. In the end, we remember the builders, and if we remember those who attempt to tear down, we do not honor them. You know, if you've been following our series on spiritual gifts, you're going to remember that the reason the Holy Spirit gives them is founded in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And later on in chapter 14, verse 12, Paul will say, So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in criticizing your pastor or your church. No, no, it doesn't say that. It says, strive to excel in building up the church. This is so important. Our energy must be in making things better and not worse. Criticizing requires no commitment, no sacrifice, only the sadistic interest in the shortcomings of others. But building up requires love for one another, a willingness to take risks and to be criticized by others, the risk of failure, the reality of sacrifice that often involves pain and the output of great energy. The Holy Spirit is interested in building up the body of Christ. But if the truth were known, there were a host of reasons to tear down the local church in Corinth. Do you remember the problems the church in Corinth faced? The church was divided into four factions, factions that were named after their favorite teachers. And many of the church had not matured in the faith. Many of the church were passing judgment over the apostles. Sexual immorality was a problem. Some believers were suing others in a court of law. Divorce was a problem. Some were attending temples and eating food sacrificed to idols, and others were making a show out of proclaiming their rights, and some did not believe in the bodily resurrection of the dead. The Lord's table had descended into a drunken feast. So let me say it again. Anyone can point out shortcomings and throw rocks. I mean, that is easy to do. Perhaps you're one of those people. You feel you're like one of those judges in a gymnastics competition holding up number signs at the end of every worship set and every sermon, at the end of every youth event and every Bible study, and you hold up a sign, you know, 7.5 or 9.3 or 4.2, you rate every event. You're the critic. You know, against that background, Paul writes 1 Corinthians 12, verse 27. Now, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. So let's review some of the things we've already learned from this text. First, each local church is the visible expression of the invisible Christ. And that's what's implied in the term body of Christ. Paul means to say that even though Christ has ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father, that he is physically represented today in every single local church. 
Now, Paul could say that to the Corinthian church despite its problems. And that's not to say the Corinthian church was was perfect like Christ. But it is to say that in spite of its sins, that's what the local church is. Look, I've myself been deeply wounded by the local church on a number of occasions, but I will not turn my back on the church, for I know what the local church is. It is the body of Christ. I've been thinking about how many ways I might drive this point home. Look, there are plenty of legitimate reasons to criticize the local church. You know, sometimes power players get their own way in the local church. Sometimes we deliberately hurt others. Sometimes we spend more time on carnal matters than evangelism and discipleship and serving one another in love. And I must confess, I've been to countless board meetings that have had nothing to do with knowing Christ and making him known. So let me tell you a story. I remember when I first met, I'm going to call her Sally. Sally wanted to join the church. And years before, she had been excommunicated at a different church. I asked her why. And she told me that that when her husband left her for another woman, the church had excommunicated them both. So I asked why. I thought, there's got to be more to this story. Well, it turns out that that church had a policy that whenever any couple got divorced, they had a policy to excommunicate them both. And they had deeply wounded Sally. I asked Sally why she wanted anything to do with the church after that, and she told me, it's the people of God. Sally had no illusions about the horrible failures of the local church. Hear me. She was not returning to the church that had excommunicated her. And for our purposes, there are times when it is appropriate to leave a local church, and whenever that's done, it should never be done lightly. It's never appropriate to leave a local church for carnal reasons. That's never appropriate. But it's also not right to stop attending and belonging to and contributing to a local church. That's because the local church is the visible expression of the invisible Christ. You would no more leave the church than you would leave Christ. Second, each believer is a member of the local church. Look again at verse 27. Now, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Now, the you in the early part of that verse, that's a plural you. It's like our neighbors in the uh, southern United States say, y'all. But but notice how quickly Paul moves from the plural you to the singular. Each individual is a member. See, Paul wants to make this personal to all of God's people. You individually don't stand outside of the church. In other words, Paul will not hear of individual Christians who do not belong to a local church. I was a young pastor when I first heard the excuse. I I was pastoring a small church in in Southern California, and I was inviting a woman to come to church. She had told me that she was a Christian, but she never went to church. I'll never forget how she responded to my invitation. She said, I don't believe in the church, and I don't think, she said, the Bible has anything to do with the church. And I was dumbfounded. I was determined from that day on to be able to answer anyone who said that at a drop of a hat. And so today, this is what I always say. I say every single book in the entire New Testament is written to an individual local church. Not one book is addressed to individuals. Even books like 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus, they're written to men who are giving leadership or pastoring their local church. And the book of Philemon, well, Philemon had a church meeting in his house, and how he responded to his slave would have everything in the world to do with how the church treated slaves in the future. 
They were to be considered brothers and sisters and not slaves. Here's my point. If you're not a part of a local church, there's not a word in the entire New Testament that was written for you. This New Testament is a book written to the church in establishing churches and growing churches and healing disunity in churches and helping churches cling to the truth and learning to rely on each other and collectively waiting for the glorious appearance of our our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. See, if that's you, someone who believes but are not attached to a local church, you need to reread this chapter 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and and then come to verse 27, and then repent and say, God, you've given me spiritual gifts so that I can build up, so that I can seek the common good. Help me to understand how desperately I need the local church. Now, using Paul's analogy from this last passage of different parts of the body, let me give you this analogy. So imagine your hand, your own hand. In fact, have a look at it how complex it is with nerves and bones and joints woven together. Now imagine that hand is cut off from the body and you're no longer filled with wonder, but you react to the fact that it's grotesque. So it is with every single believer who fails to understand that their only usefulness comes in their connection to the body. Now Paul will get to details in terms of how the body is actually supposed to work, Uh, Because I discussed verse 28 at some length in the last message, I'll only briefly make mention of it now. It says, And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. See, there's an order in the body. Teaching the Word of God is to take priority in every local church. But here's a danger. Our danger really is in one of extremes. I've noticed some very good Bible teaching churches, and for everyone, I give profound, grateful thanks to God. The alternative is a church that's about all manner of things. Some are good and some are not, but over time they lose focus on the gospel. But there is another extreme. It's Bible teaching churches that are no more than that. People come as listeners, fellowship is missing, using your spiritual gifts is missing, everything is missing. Indeed, for them, the whole body is a mouth and hundreds and even thousands of ears. Where's the rest of the body? You see, we are to grasp a hold of the entire image of what Christ wants the church to be. Ephesians Volume 1, Empowered Living, God's Glorious Resources, is your free gift this July. Christ has promised us every spiritual blessing. We were once dead in sin, but now we're alive and had become examples of the incomparable riches of His grace. Yet some of us live in spiritual bankruptcy. Well, the wealth of heaven is at our disposal. How do we access this true wealth? We hear about others who have, but we don't know how to achieve it for ourselves. If you feel the struggle, I have good news. We've been given the book of Ephesians, which provides us the tools for empowered living. This month, We're making Dr. John's series on Ephesians, Empowered Living, Volume 1, available digitally or on CD, free during July. To get your copy, visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. In Ephesians chapter 2, 19 to 20, Paul describes the essential nature of the church. He says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, 
but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Please take note of the picture here. The church is being compared to a building, and like every building, it needs a foundation upon which it stands. If the foundation is weak, it really doesn't matter what kind of structure you're going to build on top of it. You can have the finest quality of materials, but if the foundation is not properly laid, that building will not last. Now, please also notice that you only lay the foundation once. Everything else, or in the terminology of 1 Corinthians, every gift in order to be significant is built upon that foundation. And since you only lay the foundation once, you never repeat the foundation. It's once for all. And that says Paul is the foundation of the church. It's the teaching of the apostles and the prophets with local pastors and teachers appointed to lead God's people so that all are thoroughly acquainted with what Jude 3 describes as the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Listen to how Paul describes that in his last letter. It was written to Pastor Timothy, charged with giving leadership to the church in Ephesus, a church that had been plagued with false teachers. In chapter 1, verse 6, he writes, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. There seems to be little doubt that this gift is the gift of preaching and teaching. Now let's go on to 1 Timothy chapter 1, 13 to 14. Paul is still speaking about Timothy practicing the gift that he's been given. He says, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. See, that's a good deposit. That's the Christian faith, the truth about Jesus that Paul the apostle has taught personally to Timothy. Paul got it directly from Jesus. Timothy is not only to teach it, he's to guard it. That is, he must defend it. He's got to fight for it. And every good pastor knows that. The true apostolic faith is always under attack. The faithful preacher and teacher is going to look to point out error, to teach the truth. And yet he must do it with gentleness and not become a tyrant. That's an incredible job description. For that reason, we must make sure that we're praying earnestly for our pastors and teachers. They are called to lead, and the enemy of our souls knows that, that if they teach poorly or are ignorant of key truths, the devil will win the day. Their job is to ensure the church remains firmly attached to its foundation. And Paul is saying, unless these three things take place, the doctrine of the apostles and the prophets taught accurately by local teachers, unless that's solid, the other gifts will not be used in their proper way. And that's why in churches that allow for tongues and prophecy, where they are not careful for a verse-by-verse -verse instruction of Scripture, those churches fall into error, and they're going to find out that they tear down and they don't build up. Or imagine a church that exercises the gifts of helps, but has no careful teaching of the gospel, that church will simply be a band of people interested in feeding the poor or doing social justice, people who try to do good deeds, but not the church of the living Savior. In other words, where there is no good teaching and doctrinal foundation, all other gifts fall into trouble. So let me get you a little peek into what I'm going to teach in the future. It's my understanding that the large gathering of God's people should consist in public worship and preaching, 
And then the small house church gatherings should consist in a full range of spiritual gifts being used. So Paul lists these three, first, second, then third, as the Holy Spirit's method of organization. This, he says, forms the unchanging foundation of the church. Now Paul's ready to move on. In the latter part of 1 Corinthians 12, 28, after listing the three offices, Paul then adds, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Now, we're well served to notice that Paul places side by side those extraordinary gifts like miracles and healing and tongues right next to gifts like helps and administration. I hope you're as intrigued by this as I am, because at least the way I've seen things in our day, we tend to separate out those gifts. I mean, putting one kind into charismatic churches and the other into Baptist churches. It seems to me, if, if my reading of Scripture is right, God wants both of them in his church. I know that sounds scary to the two different groups of people. See, it's scary to those who want to keep tongues and prophecy out of the church and worry, like, if we allow those, we're going to attract the lunatic fringe. And it sounds scary to those who exalt tongues and prophecy over helps in administration. See, it scares them to think that the individual who works behind the scenes, who simply rolls up his or her sleeves and is constantly serving, that person is in no way inferior to the person who speaks in tongues. Humility is required of God's people. And just in case you missed that, listen to verses 29 and 30. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? I hope I'm not surprising you by telling you that the answer to every single one of those questions being asked by the apostle is the same answer. It's answered with a resounding no. Are all apostles? No, they're not. In fact, only a small select group of men are apostles. Everyone else is not. Don't worry about that. The Holy Spirit has a method in this, so don't get your nose out of joint. So let's be clear. Paul is not saying, but all should be apostles if, if they only had faith or were spiritual enough. No, no, he's not saying that. He says the Holy Spirit distributes gifts as he wills. So we come to the second question in verse 30. Do all speak in tongues? Answer, no. Should everyone try to get to the place in their lives where they speak in tongues, what plainer text do we need then to see that this is never what the Holy Spirit desires of the church. It is not the desire of the Holy Spirit that everyone should speak in tongues. See, how easy it is for us to want to organize the church on our agenda rather than the Holy Spirit's agenda. See, how easy it is for us to look at the gift mix of another and judge that which was decided by the Holy Spirit for the building up of the body. Stop trying to tear the body down, making it fit your image or your desire of what you think the church ought to be. Every once in a while, I meet someone who has a special passion for a very particular ministry. I mean here, a good and godly passion, like missions, like ministry to the poor. I mean, you name it. And instead of finding people who are gifted like they are and share their particular calling and even raising up people to share in this calling, instead of that, some feel compelled to criticize all who don't have their calling. And then unwittingly, they begin to tear down, criticize rather than build up. I guess this is a call to relish the diversity that the Holy Spirit has placed into the body of Christ. It's the call to find one's place in the body. But it's also the call to deeply love the particular placement 
that God gives to others. It's a call to stop assuming that we're greater than the others because we speak in tongues or because we have the gift of helps. Now notice verse 31, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. (laughs) Doesn't it seem to you at first reading of that verse that it almost completely contradicts everything that it said before? I mean, if gifts are no indicator of spirituality, and if they are no greater than the others, then how can it be that we're to desire greater gifts? Earnestly desire higher, greater, or better, or more important gifts. I mean, what can that mean? But as we continue to read chapters 13 and 14, we quickly realize what Paul has in mind. The greater gifts are those gifts that build up our brothers and sisters rather than ourselves. The greater gifts serve even at the expense of ourselves. The greater gifts speak to others and reminds them that they must love Christ. We are called to excel in those gifts that meet the corporate need of the church. So let me ask you a question. Are you a church builder? You know, my sense is that everyone falls into one of two categories. There are those who build and there are those who tear down. Perhaps you've been criticizing for a long time, and today, you hear the Holy Spirit speaking to you. Maybe today, you hear a call of involvement in your local church. And finally, you're called upon to move to the inside. Perhaps you hear the call to use your spiritual gifts. Perhaps you need to ask, what gifts has the Holy Spirit given me? Do you hear the Holy Spirit saying, come, build up, and make sure you don't tear down? And for those of you who have been building a long time, thank you for your faithfulness to our Lord and Savior. John, it would seem to me pretty apparent from your teaching today that if a church is busy about using their gifts and being a body of encouragement, the church will be strong. Yeah, I do think that it is, you know, this is this is a mandate for every single believer. We. We, we criticize, as, as we all know, so very quickly. It's a part of our fallen nature. I mean, we notice uh, the, the, the lack in so many people around us, and so we have this bitter spirit. But I think it's a part of this spirit-filled individual who looks for ways to encourage someone, propels them forward. And then when we begin to use our gifts, if they're used to encourage the other and help them to be stronger, I mean, wow, what a difference that kind of thing makes. So I do think that one of the marks of the healthy Christian church is that all of the people in God's church have been taught to look for ways to encourage, to build up one another. That is, I think, what God wants of all of us. Thanks so much, John, for your teaching today. And join us here again tomorrow for more of Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. The Back to the Bible Canada Israel Experience is a trip like none other. And I'm not the only one who thinks so. A supporter who attended our last trip said, now I can relate to the places of the Bible visually because I've actually been there. The planning and organization of the trip was excellent. I'd love to go on another Back to the Bible Canada trip in the future. So make your plans to join an intimate group of spiritual pilgrims this coming April 24th to May 2nd, 2022 for the Israel Experience, hosted by Back to the Bible Canada with on-location teaching with Bible teacher Dr. John Newfeld, evenings of entertainment with Laugh Against Phil Calloway, 
and very special musical guests. More information and trip itinerary and registration forms are available now. So call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca to learn more.